How would you like to ramp up your club's game day atmosphere? Big Screen Video is giving 10 lucky sports clubs the chance to win a $10,000 grant towards their own digital scoreboard. Register now at iCanWin.com.au slash BSV. On 882-6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Hello and welcome to another edition of WA's Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. In this episode, which is brought to you by Bower and O'Day, who do ordinary things extraordinarily well, we delve inside the life of one of WA's most successful in the medical field. She is the director of Fiona Stanley Hospital and the Princess Margaret Hospital Burns Unit and Western Australia Burns Service. She's also a clinical professor, a director of the Fiona Wood Foundation and in her spare time, although she doesn't get a great deal of it, a mother of six children. She's an official and Australian living treasure. It's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Fiona Wood AM. Fiona, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Now, look, a lot of people got to know you back in 2002 uh, when the Bali bombings happened. Uh, such a rush of patients from Bali uh, to Royal Perth Hospital at the time to your burns unit. I know it's, uh, well, almost 16 years ago now. But can you take us back to 2002? What do you recall of that time, that absolute time of mayhem? I think uh, 2002, as the years tick by, doesn't get easier to talk about, but a little bit harder. It's interesting that distance gives you more opportunity to reflect on, uh, on the sheer impact that that event had on so many people. Uh, for, for us working in the burn service, I mean, we're, we're part of you know, the WA Health and we had been trained to do what, what we did at that time. But the support we got from everyone around us, everyone in the community, uh, to really facilitate uh, what we were doing, mm. to look after the relatives that were coming from all over, the, all over the world, actually. We had a few German boys that were on holiday in Bali that were in the unit as well, as well as those from interstate. And so we're seeing the whole of our community uh, move forward and really do things for people that they, you know, they didn't know. Mm. But just because it was the right thing to do was actually a very, oh, I guess, inspiring, really, mm. uh, space to be. And I, I remember uh, three weeks after, where we'd been kind of busy for those three weeks, one of my colleagues, uh, Ian Gollow, who's a, a surgeon at the Children's Hospital, so, you know, we've lived through something that uh, is very special, is unique. Uh, we've lived through a period of time where everybody has been so positive and all the shoulders were to the wheel and pushing in one direction. And I think the window to our world opened at that time and people saw what we were doing and yep. saw the, the impact of uh, our research for the previous, well, 15 years. You know, so it was... Uh, it was Challenging, uh, inspiring, and as the years go by, just the the sadness of those who didn't come home and the impact on their loved ones is just gets more profound and and kind of harder. I think mm. the moment you got the call, though, do you remember we were you at home? Were you already were you already at work when the when the call came in? Because I remember a lot of people woke up to the news, and mm. it it just sort of it, it, I mean particularly gripped Perth because obviously Bali 
being our favourite playground uh, on on our doorstep. But do you remember where you were when suddenly you became aware that this had happened and your life was about to change in a profound way? I guess... Uh, that for that Sunday morning, we yep. we knew that there were two of our registrars over there. Two of the plastic surgery trainees were over uh, on holiday. Uh, I'd one had called in, and he was uh, and his wife were already at Single R Hospital helping. So we had really early intelligence, I guess, uh, that what was coming down the the, the pipeline, and so. Uh, from that first call in the morning, we were getting ready, not just here, but across the country. And we had spent previously, as coincidence would have it, we'd uh, spent time driving a national uh, burns disaster plan, uh, response plan, uh, with all our, our colleagues across the uh, Australia and New Zealand in what we call ANSBAR, that's Australia New Zealand Burns Association. And so we'd spent a lot of two years and worked with Woodside and done exercises and put all the information up to the health minister's advisory council. And so that had only happened in July. They read it and approved it in August, and this was mm. only October. Mm. And so it was the front of everyone's mind. So when we were made the calls around the country, everybody had an awareness of not only what was coming, because we we're able to tell them, but also how to work together to give the very best, the very best possible care we could. You had patients arriving with a great uh, degree of injury. Uh, you know, some fairly minor burns, others more than ninety percent uh, burns to their body. How do you process those arrivals? Did you find yourself in that difficult position where you had to, you know, really prioritise some over others? And were there some cases where you thought, I just don't know if we can save these people? The, certainly, uh, when we looked at the whole situation, well, we made the assertion that we should try. Uh, the goal was to treat everyone as if they were here as individual, pa- uh, sort of an individual patient event. Mm. And if we couldn't achieve that, then we had to work out how and why. Uh, so, uh, even though we we treated twenty eight people, and that is a significant number, we weren't overwhelmed in the sense that we couldn't treat them as individuals uh, in that context. There were three people who didn't survive. And again, it was very much the pattern of how we see the injuries on uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you know, we've tried very hard to ensure survival in it over the years, and as the decades go by, our survival rates increase. But a third of our patients don't survive within that first very first time period, like a couple mm. of days, where the injury is just so overwhelming. We just know that it's, we can't start. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have patients who survive around about three months, but they weaken with the infections that of wash over them. Mm. And uh, yeah, at three months, it's like sand through our fingers and we just can't yep. hold on any longer. It, it must have been just... Pandemonium in there. I'm, 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 I'm picturing scenes out of a TV show, but uh, you know, lots of noise, lots of people running around, just frantically doing what they could to help a lot of people who needed uh, some some pretty close attention. Was it like that? And how long how long did that sort of 
period of frenetic energy last? There was a lot of energy, but it wasn't pandemonium. You're going to tell me it was all completely calm and cool. Well, and you were it was kind of, of it. <laughs> it was it was focused. Yep. We had the time, you see, to organise ourselves yep. because they the patients came either directly from Bali or via Darwin, yep. uh, where they were triaged by the ICU teams in Darwin. Yep. So we had time and we had knowledge, so we were able to. Uh, buddy up the patient teams uh, with severity relative to the experience level of the of the nurse and uh, doctor team that was uh, uh, allocated to that person. So yes, it was busy. Uh, yes, it was noisy. And there was a lot of activity. It wasn't pandemonium. It was all really, <laughs> It was absolutely like a well-oiled. If they machine. ever make a movie about it, yeah. that's 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 yeah. how it'll come across. I know, but sure. it wasn't. It wasn't like that. It was a very slick, oiled, well-oiled machine. Because so we'd had time to talk about it. We were just off the back of a huge two-year planning process. Uh, we'd uh, we'd uh, done a whole in hindsight ex- was yeah. brilliant. Yeah, but yeah, we'd done an exercise where Woodside actually funded us all to fly up uh, to the the northwest shelf. Uh, we were in uh, Nickel Bay Hospital. They shut down North Rank in a oil rig. You know, so it was we mm. were we'd actually been through the whole process, mm. and so so yes, you were you busy. were in a way prepared. Yeah, yeah. busy but not pandemonium. Uh, you mentioned three people unfortunately passed away, but 28 mm. others really owe their mm. survival to you and, and your team. That must be an incredible feeling. Yeah. Well, that tw- the 25 uh, yeah. that survived, absolutely. But I think you know it's always learning, always learning. What could we have done better? Always uh, reviewing what we do. And certainly when we were uh, fast forward 2009 and we faced at the Ashmore Reef, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Burns disaster where we had twenty six people. There was uh, there was a lot of learnings that we carry forward, and yep. and also I think it's really important to learn uh, generally. I'm a, you know what is it, what is it today that you can take tomorrow and make tomorrow better, I, and that philosophy has just sort of escalated mm. in this context. The survivors uh, that you helped, are you still in contact with any of them now? I mean, there some have of been the guy, many years past, but mm-hmm. are you still in contact with any of them? Yeah, some of the guys, because burn injury is for life. Yeah. And so uh, things that arise, problem, little problems, niggles here and there, and, and some uh, more significant than mm. others. Uh, so, yes, they're still on our books. Once you're on our books, you always are. Uh, so we do see people from time to time. But also there have been a number of people that have done very uh, special things around fundraising and support groups and that sort of thing. So uh, from that perspective, there's been a, a the strengthening of the network for survivors. Yeah. All right, Fiona, we need to take a break, but coming up, I'm going to ask you about how you got to where you are today. Dr. Fiona Wood, AM, is my special guest. You are listening to WA's Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR. Back soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest, an Australian living treasure, no less, Dr. Fiona Wood AM. Uh, Fiona, your background story is, uh, is a fascinating one too, how you uh, came to be here in WA. So let's go back uh, to the UK, uh, where you were born. Um, where were you born in the UK? What was it like and what brought you here? Well, I was born in the north of England in uh, the uh, sort of the mining, uh, the West Yorkshire in the mining towns. And uh, 
I was third of four uh, kids. Uh, Dad uh, was a coal miner. Mum was a youth leader, and they eventually be worked in. That almost sounds like a cliche. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's like you really, yeah. This is it. Daughter of a coal miner. Yeah, yep. Uh, but uh, they were very focused on uh, both mum and dad. Are focused on sport uh, yep. and on education. You know, education gives you a choice and uh, t- to get up in the morning to enjoy what you do. Yep. And dad didn't. Yeah, you know, he he hated the coal mine. You know, crawling around on the belly in the black slime wasn't mm. his idea of fun. And certainly, when I I went back, there's a in uh, near Wakefield, there's a, a coal mine that's still working, uh, and it has a museum that you can mm. go down. And my dad's a big fella, uh, and I came back up after taking going down there with the kids, so not that long ago. And I was like, Dad, how did you fit? <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, never mind that working, you yeah. know, shoveling coal down there. Yeah, yeah, so. So a tough he, way to make a living. Oh, God, yes. And so he was very focused that we, you know, his boys wouldn't go down there. And the, the solution was education. So we were very focused and we were sort of very driven in that sporting and sort of education sort mm. of arena. And we all have our dreams when we're uh, growing up. And one of yours, I believe, was uh, being an Olympic sprinter. Yeah, I realised no, I wasn't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I realised pretty early. Yeah, I, lo- I loved running. Uh, 400 metres was yep. yeah, where I finished because uh, I couldn't keep winning at 100 as uh, 200, but I could keep going. So The distances kept getting yeah. longer. <laughs> so it kept longer because I could hang on in there. Uh, but uh, And then I realised uh, that I wasn't going to be good enough, but I'd learned how to work. Yep. Uh, and I think that's what sport does for us. It, it teaches us how to work, how to goal set and how to do better. Mm. And also, yeah, how to uh, you know, win uh, gracefully occasionally and lose gracefully more frequently. And so, so I think it's a, it's a good grounding. I'm very much a, a, a sport nut. Uh, so uh, that's where I came from. And uh, yep. I got the opportunity to go to a Quaker school, courtesy of my mum. Uh, she got a job there uh, and uh, meant that I could uh, continue after year 10. Yep. As otherwise, my contemporaries were finishing at year 10 in the sort of in the mining village. Well, thank goodness you so, did. Yeah, it's uh, good that mum went for that interview. She mm. went for an interview as a, for a, a house mother, uh, just looking after the kids in the boarding school. And she came out the phys ed teacher because she was pretty fit, and so and she ran the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme yep. eventually in the in Yorkshire and in the north, sort of northeast. Uh, so uh, she was a pretty much a go getter, and uh, she held me. I remember the I was thirteen when I went to that school, and it was a it was it just changed my life. Yeah, uh, gave me opportunities I just hadn't had only dreamt of before, mm. and so. Uh, she sort of held me by the shoulders that morning as I was walking to school. She just, you know, grasped the nettle with both hands and never let it go. So that was, yeah, I and, always and, remember and it. And for once, a daughter yeah. took her mum's advice. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you're <laughs> on, mum. I'm in here. Yeah. So, so it was a very special time for me. Yeah. And yet you ended up in, in WA for more romantic reasons yeah, for love. Yeah, yeah. Well, I met my husband uh, when we were both junior surgeons and yep. he said, it's non-negotiable, you marry me, you live in Perth and that's not Scotland. <laughs> and I go, yeah, it was a couple of years away from the move uh, which transpired and I figured I'd known him three weeks so it was reasonable. Yeah, we we both got, we got <laughs> did married. Did you take him seriously at that point? I'm not sure if I really did <laughs> but we got married after the, we were the first weekend our rosters coincided and so it was a shock to all our families. Quite a whirlwind then. Yeah, it was 
they all like, what are they doing? So are we too busy? You know, this is it. We're sorted. Now go. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so two years later when uh, it was non-negotiable, I, I landed here. But by then uh, I had a 15-month-old a and a five-week-old babe wow. when I arrived. So he always says he left with a backpack and came, returned to the UK with the world on his shoulders. <laughs> what, did you, what did your family think when you just upped and left like that? I think that, I mean, my mother said that they came down to Heathrow to see us off. Yeah. And she always says, you never even looked back. <laughs> I had like two kids' bags. And they're like, how can I look back? I dropped yeah. something. But sort of, she goes, no, you know what I mean. And I said, well, it was a big adventure. It was just cool. I was uh, going somewhere where there was a beach and it was warm. And, <laughs> and You've clearly I, done your research. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I got here. It was November 87, and I, say, I remember saying, wake up, wake up. I said, what's happened? I said, it's a sunny day. We can't miss a sunny day. Yeah. Uh, there's been plenty of sunny days since yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. so it, I, it was a big adventure. I didn't realize I wouldn't ever – I wouldn't go home. It was eight and a half years mm. before I, I went back to the UK. What, even once? Yeah. Really? Didn't go back. Well, it was busy, and I had another four children and you know, working. I suppose. And, you know, and I guess it wasn't as easy as well. And even yeah. in the uh, sort of the eighties, early nineties, that, that you know, it was you know, the co- like the cost of air travel mm. and the, you know, let, now let alone having to corral six kids yeah, on the on yeah. the flight. So yeah, we we went back when you take up a whole row. Well, oh yeah, and the rest. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Um, when you came out here, though, obviously you were qualified uh, as a as a as a what as a surgeon. Then. Well, I was were kind you, of. Were you finished part. with your education? No, no, I was kind of part way. It wasn't an ideal time to move on one from that perspective. I had a general surgical fellowship, and I was halfway through my plastic surgery fellowship. Right. So when I got here, I did a uh, it was a, a little bit of shenanigans. And I did a, a year in general surgery and then two years in plastic surgery before uh, I got through the exams. And in 1991, in January 91, that's when I became a consultant in my own mm. right here. Why plastic surgery? I, th- I think right when I think back, uh, because, of course, you make these decisions at the time mm. when you're young, you, you see opportunities and you go for them. And, you know, sometimes with a lot of ang- hand wringing, but more frequently, in a pressured situation, you go, oh, that looks good, and off you go, and I'll give it a go. Uh, and when I was uh, a medical student, I realized I needed to make my CV look special. I needed to get into uh, to research so that I, I had a CV that couldn't be ignored. And one of the guys who I connected with at that time was a plastic surgeon who was doing some really innovative work. And so I, I was able to go into the operating room and it was like, you know, I tell you, that's just incredible. Mm. Uh, microsurgery was just coming in and the tissue expansion and all these different techniques that now are, are quite commonplace. Yep. I was there at the beginning. And so I kind of came under his wing. I was doing lots of research. I was the sort of the worker ant. And as I got through, I, I saw how creative plastic yep. and reconstructive surgery was. And I thought, yep. This is where I'll be. So was it a natural step then to go from plastic surgery and into specifically working with people who've been affected by burns? Yes. In in the UK, uh, the plastic and reconstructive surgeons run the burns units. Right. It's a little different here. It varies across different states, uh, sometimes trauma surgeons, sometimes paediatric surgeons, but by and large plastic and reconstructive surgeons. Mm. And so when I looked and saw... Uh, the need with respect to research, I thought, well, this is where I'll go. 
Yeah. I saw some of the patients and the suffering years after. I thought, we've got to be able to do better. Mm. So it started me on that path. In terms of your professional life and all that you've achieved, who do you credit with inspiring you along the way the most? I mean, you mentioned your dad. Uh, he probably uh, instilled mm. in you this need to do something that you loved mm. doing. You mentioned your mum. Uh, as well, uh, the plastic surgeon that you admired when you first uh, moved into that hospital. Are they the people who have shaped who you are professionally now? I think, you know, certainly family, absolutely. The teachers you have, I had some fantastic yep. teachers. I, I had a not long ago a conversation with my 96-year-old physics teacher. Uh, you know, tell me what's new, Fiona. Mm. And we were talking about how maybe one day the brain is, uh, the information in the brain could help us heal. And can we think ourselves whole? You know, he was an inspirational character when I was a 16-year-old. He's still inspirational when I'm a 60-year-old, you know. So he was talking about this. I was, he was asking then. me what was new yeah. just recently, James. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, and I was, uh, we were discussing the whole sort of electricity around the brain because he's the physics teacher. Yeah. And uh, and so, but then I'd have to say that the 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 third group of people that I've been very fortunate in the teachers I've had. Yep. Uh, and I use teaching in the sort of professional sense into the plastic surgical teachers that I've had along the way. Like is here in Perth, Harold McCoy was an extraordinary man. Mm. But also the patients that you see. Yep. And there are people that uh, I see their faces now, and I I think about it. And think about different things and different aspects, and seeing that level of human suffering, uh, and people, the strength of people coming back from that, is I mean, it's a huge drive to do mm. better. Absolutely huge mm. drive. Well, no better inspiration than the than the people you're helping, I suppose. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Look, we're going to have to uh, head to a break. Uh, the Fiona Wood Foundation and the world's first spray on skin. The next uh, couple of things I would like to ask you about. Uh, Dr. Fiona Wood AM is my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. My very special guest is an Australian living treasure, Dr. Fiona Wood AM. Uh, Fiona, one of the things that uh, you will be remembered for, not, not that we're talking about your, your legacy just yet, uh, the world's first spray-on skin. Yeah, well, that's an interesting, yeah, of course, yeah, there's plenty more uh, to do yet. Uh, the spray on skin cells yep. uh, came from oh, way back in the early 90s. I was working with Marie Stoner, a medical scientist, and we're working together growing skin cells from you to you. So mm. we were very focused on avoiding uh, transmission of infection, avoiding rejection, and we we worked out that if we could develop a system where the burn wound itself could receive the cells, yep. then we could use the body as the tissue culture environment, which is actually more like a natural healing. Yes. And so we put the first steps of the tissue culture process into a kit. And so we dissociate the cells the engine, that really come from the engine room of the skin and filter them out and sort of shake them about a bit and then spray them back on. Uh, and so we were able to cover much larger areas and the cells are really activated. And so, yeah, that uh, came from research that we did 
in the early 90s. We first sprayed cells on in 94-95, and then the kit was finished and ready for commercialization, in fact, around 2002. So it took a little while, didn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah. and it's still going. It's still going through the FDA, and uh, and it's being used in lots in Europe, and, in, yep. and China is, is really... Uh, exploding the use there because yep. they have a lot of problem with scarring there mm. as well. And so they scar quite badly in yep. that sort of type of skin. So, yes, it's used all around place now in different contexts, so it's good. Please don't be modest in answering this question, but how big a breakthrough is it? Well, for me, I think the, the whole concept of this as a breakthrough, it's, it happened when we did this 20-odd years ago. <laughs> Maybe it seems like a breakthrough to a layperson. For you, it's probably been a, a long and protracted thing, yeah? And currently, we're just pulling a team together to actually take, it, take things to the next level where, well, if we can spray cells on, can we actually spray the construct and the cells? Mm. So actually, can we take the, the bioprinting uh, concept with what we've done previously and actually uh, really solve some of the issues that cells alone can't solve. Yep. So bringing bioprinting with the scaffold. I'm really having to use oh. my brain here to follow yeah. you. Yeah, sorry. I'm thinking about, about the, yeah. the, the, the possible implications maybe beyond skin cells. Are there? Absolutely. Yes, I think this, the, the looking at the bioprinting of tissues now is yep. a very exciting okay. space. I think it's fantastic to be able to bioprint in the laboratory, mm. but I think it's a whole different ballpark to bioprint on a body. So, mm. so watch this space. We'll okay. try and get that sorted. It sounds intriguing. I don't mm. quite know what it means, but it sounds <laughs> intriguing. Um, last time I spoke to you, we had a we had a conversation, and, and you mentioned this idea of, uh, and it, it, it sounded like science fiction. Fascinating, but the work of science fiction talking about harnessing the the power of the brain to mm. heal the body. Well, we, yeah. Is it still science fiction or is it something that you are actually looking at? Well, we do some things that are moving, pushing those boundaries. Mm. We know that if you're burnt on the back of your right hand, the nerves on the back of your left hand change and your brain... And, and why, why is that? You, ah, that's what the why is the big question. Your brain also changes. And so if we understood how we could harness that energy, we may be able to... Just, or drive the shape of healing into a better, more normal shape. And so it's a, it is a, a, a huge task to understand why the nerves across the whole body change. Mm. But we've done lots of sort of bite-sized pieces. We know the cells near the spinal cord change, not just on the same side as the injury, but on the other side as well. So that's fascinating. Fascinating. We, yeah, we know that in older people, the brain changes that are less plastic. You know, we get a bit more stiff in our heads when we're old. And that actually means that it takes us longer to recover. Yeah. We also use what we call a mirror box, where if you've got a burnt hand, you put it in a box, so you move your good hand, and your brain thinks both of them are normal. And that helps get you heal quicker. So there's all these little tiny uh, pieces of the jigsaw, but we're, we're in a kind of a thousand-piece jigsaw, and mm. we've only got maybe 25 pieces. And we're working on the rests, but so it's again watch this space. But we we we're tenacious, if nothing else. How do you even go about uh, researching that? Do you actually need to research on people who have a wound to start with? Well, we do lots of uh, work at different levels on cells, as well as on uh, understanding and following the changes in people, mm. and understanding the changes in people from the the sort of uh, the 
whole of body level all the way down to the genetic level. And then we link in with things like we've worked recently with IBM Watson Drug Discovery. And people may know that IBM Watson actually won Jeopardy, the game show. This right. computer that won game show. And I say, well, guys, if it can win the game show and play chess, <laughs> can't it do something more useful? Right? And so it's actually uh, read the whole of the world's medical literature. This and computer has... This computer. And so, <laughs> uh, so we've, we did a, a piece of work with IBM that came from New York uh, and we, we put our, our problem on the table of trying to understand why burn injury causes all these secondary effects in your nerves, your heart and all these different things and used the, the sort of cognitive computing and the artificial intelligence aspect to try and find which, uh, which pathways to go down. So that's a really exciting This is sounding space. like science fiction. This sounds like oh. asking the meaning of life. Remember, but it's fascinating because we had getting, like, getting 42. Yeah, you've got maybe a thousand genes on the table that, and you could look at any of them and to look at any of those genes takes a lot of money and time yep. and effort. Yep. But we're now down to 10 mm. courtesy of the Watson. And so mm. now we're, you know, it, it focuses us. It doesn't tell us the answer. Mm. We've still got to do the work, but it, it kind of... It cuts out the finds the, it finds a, a part of the needle okay. and removes Helps you some, find of, those some of the haystack. Pieces. Yes, yeah. yeah. I suppose the end goal, though, is uh, a scarless mm. heel. Yes, is that going to be achievable in in your lifetime? I think it's interesting, scarless healing, because I had this idea that we would achieve it and we'd all walk away and go mm. down the beach. But, yeah, <laughs> and we've done job done. But I've realized it's more of a journey. And, for example, recently we were reviewing all the children at the uh, PMH who had been burnt around the 18 months to three years. Yep. And we, they were coming back between five and seven. And of the 50 children we brought back, only six of them had scars yep. that you could see. The rest had no perceptible scars. So yep. clearly... Uh, with our cell-based therapies, in, especially in the children, we're achieving a scarless healing result in a significant number. So it's, but not it, not it's like eighty percent of people, eighty percent of the time in that particular group. Mm. So how do we actually learn from that, and also learn from the ones that have still got scars? What are the differences? What mm. are the nuances? And so that we can actually push that mm. further forward. So it's it, it is possible in certain circumstances right here, right now. Mm. And we're moving those goalposts incrementally as we yep. learn more and more. Tell us about the Fiona Wood Foundation. How did it start and, and, and what does it do? The Fiona Wood Foundation started as the Macomb Foundation a long time ago when yep. uh, we had patients supporting us uh, with donations and uh, we were able to uh, – I basically felt it was a way of honouring Harold Macomb, who'd been a great mentor and teacher – as I handed that uh, the the foundation uh, to the team to continue, obviously I'm still part of it. They, then it was uh, the name change uh, was by my colleagues to keep that going forward. And so I find it a bit kind of awkward, <laughs> but uh, but it's interesting because it's been huge. Uh, so many people have helped us, and the one thing that's really hard is to fund research. Yeah. And if you have a competitive grant and and if you've no way of sort of roughing it, ironing out the rough spots where in between those grants, then you lose your, you lose such vital manpower. Yeah. You have such vital brains of our scientists. So it has been awesome. We've got corporate donors, uh, 
appear, you know, just right down to mums and dads and kids, you know. So it's been enormous because it's meant that, you know, the people of WA have really helped us over this, oh, 20 years now. Mm. We're going to have to head to, to a break. Uh, what is life like today and, and what is next uh, in the field of Burns Medicine? We've touched on it a little bit. I'm curious to know what you do on your downtime as well. Fiona, I can't imagine you get much, but I will ask you anyway. That's going to come up uh, soon. Dr. Fiona Wood AM is my special guest. You're listening to WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day. WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Uh, Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest, an Australian living treasure, Dr Fiona Wood AM. Uh, Fiona, we spoke before about uh, how much uh, of a demand you have on you professionally. You've also got six kids. You take mm. up an entire row in the plane when you, whenever you travel. How on earth do you combine uh, the needs of your profession with the needs of, of, of six kids? That's a lot. Yeah, I've, I've been very lucky. I mean, they're amazing. I often think it's you know it's uh, as a it's very special to be their mum. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, in the main that they've been fit and healthy. I yep. think that's uh, that's uh, uh, been a great fortune. And they they are uh, uh, a crew that keep you honest, uh, mm. <laughs> keep you to task. That's for sure. How old are they? Are they now? We're we talking teenagers. Oh or, no, no. Oh, <laughs> A great span. Yeah, no, eight years, thirty-one down to twenty-three. So they're uh, moving on in life now, and and that's. It, I, I'm a real kid person. I mean, I loved babies, I loved toddlers, I loved. Obviously, all, I loved every stage, <laughs> and now it's really interesting because yeah, you know, we're seeing what they're doing and all different and moving on in yep. life. It, it's uh, it's just great to be connected with with them still. Any of them following in your footsteps? Just one. Uh, I have two girls and four boys. Your favourite and... child, then. <laughs> oh, 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 this is... Uh, make sure they don't hear this. Uh, no, my eldest girl is in plastic surgery training. Right. Very much following in your yeah, footsteps, so, then. Yeah. You mentioned uh, when you met your now husband back in the UK, he promised you sunshine and beaches. With all of that, six kids and, and a busy professional life, do you get to the beach at all? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, a real beach person, so I get there every every morning. Well, every morning I'm in Perth, I'll be down there. You're one of those crazy yeah. people, even first thing on a winter's morning. Yes, absolutely. In the water or just on the on the beach? Well, either walk and, and ride my bike and then throw myself in the water afterwards. Wow. But uh, <laughs> was, uh, recently, uh, I think we're looking for sharks more because yeah. recently I couldn't get in because there, there was a shark alarm and I went back later and there was fork lightning. I'm thinking, hmm, today's mm. possibly not a good day to go in that water. <laughs> yeah. You should know. Mm-hmm. You've got so many awards and accolades to your name. One of them is Australia's Most Trusted Person from 2005 to 2010. I have to say... Uh, when they when they put out those lists of most trusted professions, you know, people like you are always at the top. Journalists are generally down the bottom, you know, <laughs> with real estate agents and car salesmen. What's it like to be a trusted person? Uh, I... I think it's something that I'd have to. I'd have to <laughs> confess I haven't given a lot of thought to uh, in, uh, in that context. I think you know, uh, we are very fortunate in in the profession. Yeah. Uh, that uh, you know it comes with that that's as part of the package, if you mm. like. But I also think it's really uh, unfortunate that 
for the journalists and the politicians in the room. You know, we we uh, read what and listen, and then you know, then complain. Well, actually, if if we well, did, thank you. We're not all that bad. You know, we? it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, I mean, if we want to hear and listen and have different people in there, we'll actually do something about it rather than complain and put them at the bottom of the list. You know, that's so, true. Yeah, that's true. You can switch it off, mm-hmm. or you can yep. vote for someone else. <laughs> do you have like a you know a mantelpiece with all these awards on them? Though, are you are you, are you one of those people to, to to put them out, or do, do your relatives insist on you put it? You're going to tell them you just stuff them in a drawer, aren't you? Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think uh, I humble mean, to the end. I've, I've I've kept things because I think maybe at some point the kids might be interested in in uh, that reflection of over time, uh, but I find it awkward. Yeah, yeah, and it's and I don't I don't quite understand as on as well because I think what I do is I've been trained to do and I I I've been very fortunate. Mm. I, I get up in the morning and, and you know, and like Dad says, you're lucky if you enjoy what you do. And that may sound strange in that I work in a very pressured and, and often very sad environment. But when you're in a position where you can do something to help, yep. that's very empowering and personally satisfying. Yep. And, uh, and when you can't help in that situation, my coping strategy over the years has been to make sure that when that person you know, doesn't survive – then we learn something so yep. that others do. Mm. And I, I can, you know, I look back now and I think, yeah, that made me think differently. That that helped as we went forward. And so... It's like you're doing your own little coronial inquest. Yes, there. yeah. And you've just got to be brutally honest mm. with yourself. None of us is ever going to be perfect at any day. And so there's always a day you can learn something. Do you ever switch off? Do you do you feel a need to switch off, or is that what the early morning beach run is? About I think that? the bit of the, when I, I'm just laughing and throwing myself in the washing machine, <laughs> and I just like, like a demented seal. Uh, that, yeah, that's sort of I come up and my head's clear. Yeah, yeah. Is that all you need, or have you got other hobbies and outlets as well? I think you know, uh, there's nothing like. Uh, the family. Uh, yeah. I remember when the kids were all teenagers. I'd never realised how stupid I was when I had a house full of teenagers. <laughs> you know, because they're clearly teenagers are actually the pinnacle of, in, of you know, cognitive capacity, aren't they? And yeah. if is, is that perfect storm? And they don't when, want to be. Yeah, when they think they know everything and they're not enough insight to know they know nothing. Yeah. And as we get older, we know we know nothing really in the scheme <laughs> of things. <laughs> We've got so uh, much to learn. The more you learn, the more yeah. you realise you don't know. Absolutely, yes. Which I suppose is a good mindset for you to have as you move forward and you have to embrace. We spoke about these sort of science fiction concepts, but uh, you kind of have to be constantly open to those sorts of uh, ideas, don't you? Well, I think it's really interesting time to live. Uh, to, it, there are so many things in, in science, engineering, technology, mathematics. You know, we hear a lot about the big data. Well, actually, it can help us. You know? yep. And you know, having a, a, the blinkers off and engaging and trying to understand how they that that sort of knowledge that information i suppose can be turned into knowledge and ch- change that knowledge into experience mm. to better our lives whether it be in food security or burn surgery or whatever mm. is really important so i think yeah it's as a as a sort of society the blinkers off and engagement is actually much more productive yep. than uh, you know shunning of diversity yep. and uh, and trying to maintain status quo I mean, if we did that in medicine, we'd still be bloodletting with leeches. You know, so you know, people enjoy uh, a very advanced and uh, level of healthcare and medicine and life expectancy mm. and all. And that hasn't come from uh, really 
from being closed-minded. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've got your own foundation, obviously, the Fiona Wood Foundation. You're still working on the, the spray-on skin, still helping people, you know, one-to-one uh, in, in hospital. Is there anything else that you really want to achieve in your working life? I think uh, as I go forward, uh, I've got a fantastic team, uh, certainly at the front line clinically, and there's so many things in my head uh, around the research that I just want just to get so the, sow the seeds, mm. or get them down on paper somewhere so that uh, then the, uh, the, they can be built upon by, the, by others. And so, so I mean, the whole, uh, the whole understanding of the nervous system, it absolutely fascinates me. Uh, we could possibly think ourselves whole. The actual putting the cells and the frameworks in the right place at the right time fascinates me. And I think, you know, it's, it's by bringing people together across those disciplines that we'll be able to solve these problems and actually use the, you, and harness the intellect mm. for, for the benefit of us all. So the that's great where, untapped resource. Yeah. The human brain. The human brain. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And yet even the most uh, precise instruments uh, that we have are still like hitting it with a sledgehammer, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. At one point, I think, you know, in the future, they'll, they'll look back and go, you know, they have these things called surgeons. They cut, in, <laughs> they cut I each other. I used to be one. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be like, oh, what's the tomorrow? Yeah. I think that's what's exciting. What keeps us going yeah. is how can tomorrow be better? Well, and you're still in that, in many ways, unique position in, in the medical field, aren't you, where you get to do your research and you still get to have patient contact time. Yes, I think certainly for the last 30 years, all we've done is, tra- we, is translational research mm. is uh, focused on a clinical problem. That's very, uh, it's, it's talked about a lot right now, this whole concept of uh, research for, uh, for specific uh, clinical benefit. But, you know, it's the space we've lived for 30 years yep. and uh, it's a great space to be. Well, thank goodness you're there because what you've thank achieved you. so far has helped so many people and uh, long may it continue. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure spending the last hour with you. Thanks for your time and uh, giving us an insight into your inspiring story. We look forward to you joining us again next time on Inspiring Stories right here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.